0: The Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Hello, I'm Pamela Morales, the communications officer at the Museum of South Texas History. Welcome back to Stories from the Rio Grande. If you heard the previous episode, you might know that this podcast is giving people of the Rio Grande Valley an opportunity to share stories that complement the museum's exhibits. In this first season, Neil Cassidy shares his perspective about working in the fresh produce industry. Neil's perspective is one of many, and I hope, along with the museum staff, that this perspective encourages others to share their stories. Here's Neil. Hello, Neil, and welcome back.
1: Uh, Thank you, Pamela. It's good to see you again.
0: So in the previous episode, you provided a brief history of your life. Before 1976, you were working in Canada as a shipping distributor. Then you moved to the Valley to work for Griffin and Brand. Is that correct?
1: Yes, Pamela. I was, I, I was looking to move to the point of production sales and Griffin and Brand had an opening and I, I was very lucky.
0: Before we get started, I'd like to give some context about the fresh produce industry that is highlighted in the River Crossroads exhibit here at the museum. Uh, That particular exhibit has the packing shed, which is uh, in the middle of the exhibit, and it has a sign that reads Magic Valley Produce Company. It says of the history that investors came to the valley in the early 1900s, mostly in thanks to the railroads. And also the region was heavily marketed as the Magic Valley. The land had been cultivated, making it possible to grow almost anything. And then 1920s and 30s, the agricultural-based economy and the towns began to thrive. And then 40 to 50 years later, when Youneal were working for Griffin and Brand, the industry was still at its height, economy-wise. So, in your opinion, what made the valley so exciting, most especially during the 1970s and 1980s?
1: Pamela, fresh produce was a huge deal and the leading employer of labor in this area. The Rio Grande Valley was number three in the nation for winter fresh produce production. Uh, California was first, of course, with its southern San Joaquin Valley and a huge swath of winter productive land from Santa Maria down to San Diego on the coast. And then in the desert from, from Palm Springs to Calexico, they are giant. Florida was number two with winter productive land from Miami to Orlando, interrupted only by the Everglades. Inside our little 100 mile long and 50 mile wide rectangle. Valley farmers grew enough fresh produce to keep us at number three.
0: Considering, you know, the whole the whole country, that's still a really good place to be in. Although there are fresh produce companies still in the region, uh, most cities in the Valley, such as McAllen, Farr, Mission, and Brownsville, are known to have lots of cold storages for produce that comes from Mexico and then it's sold across the country. I believe those cities have busy international bridges and create, as most people would refer as, economic engines. Most would say that this is in effect of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement that was established in 1994. But uh, during your time, where was the hustle and bustle? I mean, where could one see that the fresh produce industry was the economic engine for the valley?
1: Definitely, uh, the morning commute on 23rd Street from Dove to Lollan Loop was the place to see the action. The morning commute was easy, but by noon that stretch had become as frenetic as the midway at a county fair and almost as loud. By the evening commute 23rd Street had become a traffic madhouse because the three one of three of the largest shippers of fresh produce in the Rio Grande Valley were located on the east side of 23rd Street between Brand Drive and, and Fox Drive
0: obviously valley traffic isn't as bad as Austin or Houston but right now, it is kind of a mess. Expressway 83 or you know Interstate 2 is going through construction and all of that. So there's some slight backup traffic. Did any of that traffic on 23rd affect the commuters around the valley?
1: Uh, yeah. The traffic buildup in a day began like this. In the early morning, only a few 18-wheelers would be driving around going to pick up product that they knew was all ready to load. By late morning, many of the smaller bulk harvest trucks uh, were arriving at packing sheds delivering product, and some more 18-wheelers were arriving to look for their orders, which would hopefully be ready shortly. And by late afternoon, the 18-wheelers and the harvest trucks were really coming in. And the trucks with product from Mexico, from the border that had just cleared customs, uh, would come in too. And as you can see, the, the traffic was a mess around these large facilities by the late afternoon and commuters were trying to get on from Raymondville to Rio Grande City that repeated itself because there were over 200 produce loading operations.
0: So what was the packing process? How did the packing sheds get everything ready to be shipped? And where did the produce end up?
1: Well, Pamela, in theory, packing fresh produce is a system that functions like any other factory. Raw product or parts enter one end of the line. People and machines perform various operations on the product and consumer-ready product goes into trucks for distribution. As usual, reality is way more complicated.
0: Reality is way more complicated. Could you explain that? How how hard is it to work in the produce industry? Uh,
1: it, it, none of it's easy. In the fields, often not enough harvest crews would show up for work, or the right number of crews would show, but they would all be short a few hands. Either way, you wouldn't have enough people to get the job done. The harvest supervisor would start the people he had and then would begin working his contractor connections to get more crews to get the job done. The workers would complain that the product was too spread out in the field or it was too muddy or it was too dry and dusty, okay? Most of the time, they were at least partially right, okay? And harvesting is hard and dirty work.
0: But uh, after harvest it, harvesting, where does the produce go? Uh, does it go to a facility?
1: It went to a facility most people call a shed. Even if it was giant and modern and everything, they call it the shed. And it had its own emergencies to start the day. For example, two, two forklifts wouldn't start, say. The loading foreman is trying to get two rental fork trucks on the phone, and the repair technician is trying to solve the the problem. Orders have to get loaded. On the packing line, for instance, one maintenance crew will be replacing a broken chain drive and another crew would be replacing a worn conveyor belt that might break during the day. The stress is high. If the machinery wasn't ready for operation when the packing crew arrived, the crew had to be paid for just standing there, okay? So the maintenance guy had to get their job done. If the trucks with harvested raw products were held up too long getting unloaded because of the packing line problems, the field harvesting crew would be forced to load product even later in the day and into the night sometimes. If that happens, the entire packing crew might be held late and be on overtime for the last part of their day. And packing costs will will skyrocket. So everybody was under the gun.
0: Is there another reason why everything must happen in a timely manner? I'm just assuming that also produce isn't easy to keep fresh.
1: No. Uh, And speed is the thing all the way through the process. And speed is necessary because your product's dead. When a product's been harvested by severing it from its root system, it's been effectively killed. And as with all dead things, produce begins to decay. The race is on to get the product hauled to the packing plant. The urgency is like a code blue in a hospital, really. The field harvest truck moves as quickly as possible. The truck is a 20 to 25 foot long flatbed with slat sides uh, that are six feet high or more. And when it's a, when it arrives, it's driven up onto a, a sharp angled ramp tips the truck, probably to the right mostly. And then the the bottom four or five slats are actually a door, and you open that, and the product runs out of the truck, sometimes with a little hand help, down onto a conveyor, and the belt whisks the product up into the building.
0: Then what happens in the building?
1: In the building, on, on both sides of that crowded conveyor belt, sharp-eyed and quick-fingered graders snatch the defective pieces out of the narrow flowing river of produce that's whipping by them. The defectives are sent down a chute to another conveyor and out to a truck which takes the discards away. The conveyor flow continues to a roll sizer. Uh, a roll sizer is a line of rollers, like, look like a line of rolling pins set at a slight V angle. Uh, As the produce passes down the channels of the V, the smaller fruits fall down between the rollers as they're narrow and then as they widen, the larger fruit falls out down into a chute and onto a packing table station. The packer picks up the product and places it into the carton. And when a box is filled, he places that onto a conveyor which terminates at the pallet stacking station a full pallet, they, they, they pack a full pallet with a configuration that will allow refrigeration to pass through it. And, and the full pallet is then taken by a forklift to the cold room. Once the product has reached the cold room, the the cold blue kind of relaxes. Okay. To intensive care mode. Uh, and the process of decay has been slowed by cooling the inside of each piece of produce in this cold room.
0: So it keeps it fresh. So now that everything is packed and basically ready to go, what is the next step? What happens after that?
1: You know, Pamela, until this point in the process, the seasoned produce professionals have dealt with tangible, at-hand, and product situations. The salespeople must deal with tangible and intangible factors on a national and sometimes even global scale. As an example of a typical day in a fresh produce sales office, maybe the first call of the day into the sales office is from a retail chain buyer in the northeastern United States. Buyer is canceling four loads of product, which he had booked for shipment today and tomorrow because a freak snowstorm had paralyzed the traffic in the entire area. Uh, And his sales will be stopped. And then as a produce salesman, you would express... Concern and best wishes for the guy's situation and form a simple and obvious tactical plan in your mind. By the time your conversation is over, okay? All you need now is numbers, okay? Scanning today's and tomorrow's orders, the salesman sees that 12,000 packages are on order by customers in the storm affected area, okay? He must call customers to the south of that storm's path. It needs to be done this minute before some other company's salesmen make that move. Uh, Over the next few days, 18 leaders will come and take all the produce away. But the daily cycle of control panic continues.
0: hearing your daily cycle of control panics I think I've concluded that it sounds like a movie scene from the New York Stock Exchange Um, you know like a Wall Street guys yelling over the phone or at screens trying to make deals happen now I'm curious like what what is the most memorable order or shipment
1: uh Pamela, there there are so many loads that went sideways that any produce salesman could write a book just about that subject. All strong weather conditions, blizzards, hurricanes, uh, heavy thunderstorms could affect delivery. Uh, Human error could too. Uh, Once, a truck delivered a load of Texas grapefruit uh, destined for Safeway in Richmond, California to Richmond, Virginia. But there was a pair of loads of onions shipped from Las Cruces, New Mexico to Boston that I will never forget because of a court case. In the days before cell phones and GPS, independent truckers would sometimes run in pairs uh, as a safety precaution. When they came to load, I had a bad feeling uh, about these two truck drivers that were sent to us by a truck broker. Nothing really solid. I just There was just spider sense tingling about them. The driver's names uh, were Ivory Lee Wilson and Willie James Bibbs. And yes, I have remembered their names since 1978. The load should have delivered in three days, but there was no sign or of them or any word on them. They just disappeared. On the fourth day, I shipped two replacement loads to the Boston customer at a discount just to keep him from being on the phone screaming all the time. The truck broker filed a report with the FBI thinking that the loads had been stolen. On the 10th day, (laughs) I got a call from Ivory Lee Wilson in North Carolina. Ivory Lee said that he and Willie James had to go there for business and they would now deliver the loads in two more days. Well, Boston was out, so I told him to deliver the loads to Brand Brothers Oswald's younger brother's wholesale house uh, in Atlanta. And then one year later, I read in the Packer a produce industry newspaper that Ivory Lee Wilson and William James Bibbs had been arrested in North Carolina on a charge of slavery. They had held people against their will to use as harvest labor in the vegetable fields, slavery in our time.
0: And in some cases that is happening in certain areas around the country. You know, a very sad uh, thing that's still happening. But now I'm wondering, during your time at Griffin and Bran, which produce or citrus was selling like hotcakes?
1: Uh, du- during this time, grapefruit w- was a steady mover, uh, until 1983, of course. And Griffin and Brand owned controlling interest in Alamo fruit, which was a large citrus packing firm in Alamo. So I got to watch how these salesmen worked their trade. Uh, The grapefruit market never went berserk, but it always moved along at a profitable level because there were three or four outlets for the fruit. Uh, The packers could sell the fruit to the retail trade or to the gift fruit trade or to the school fundraising trade. I don't even know if that exists anymore. Or to the juice plant. They would take the fruit that wasn't suitable for the other customers. But in general, demand was increasing for spring sweet yellow onions and winter sweet red onions imported from Mexico. Consumption was falling on the winter crops of the Rio Grande Valley, such as whole head cabbage and bagged whole carrots. But there's almost no such thing as a long-term strong sales in the valley's fresh fresh produce. but Fresh vegetable and melon markets almost always fluctuate up and down, sometimes wildly. Uh, A line chart of any commodity seasonal market would look like an EKG of a person with cardiac arrhythmia.
0: One of my good friends, she actually had valley grapefruit and other citrus shipped to Pennsylvania, because from my understanding, it's sometimes really hard to find Texas grapefruit in those areas um, in the East Coast. It seems like the valley had so much growing. What, what was the yearly cycle of the fresh produce? Were the summer months mostly one produce item?
1: In the Rio Grande Valley, the fresh produce season would start harvesting in October uh, leafy greens and herbs led the way. J.S. McManus Produce in Weslico and Teddy Bertuca Company in McAllen were the heavy hitters in, in those crops. Grapefruit started in a way in, in late October too, but November was when the real volume harvest began. Two of the mainstay crops, cabbage and carrot, started then. Uh, Griffin and Brand did not do the leafy greens and herb crops, but supplemented its produce line with imports from Mexico. Uh, Since Griffin and Brand had been the largest volume volume shipper of onions in the nation for a couple of decades, uh, the main winter import from Mexico was new crop white onions, sweet white onions. Uh, Those onions were best used raw in Mexican recipes because they were tender and sweeter than the hard hot storage onions that were available in the United States in the winter. Through the winter, Griffin and Brand and others imported cantaloupes, cherry tomatoes, strawberries, bell peppers, cucumbers, and other produce. Look, there were were other produce shippers who sold all winter and never loaded a package of produce grown in the Rio Grande Valley. It was all imported limes and watermelons and mangoes from Mexico. But they created a lot of valley employment. Well, that was the winter deal, uh, and it was it was sometimes exciting, like like a ride at the county fair. Spring was coming, and spring selling was like Six Flags. The valley valley grown onion and cantaloupe deals were like a hair blowing straight back, heart in your throat, screamer of a ride. Star produce and Griffin and Brand flooded cantaloupes out of Rio Grande City. Plantation produce pushed melons out of Mission. Teddy Bertuga Company and Griffin and Brand added more to the flow in McAllen. Elmore and Stahl poured in from far, as did Rogers produce from Edinburgh uh, and Real Fresh from San Juan. Lamentia Cullum Collier and J.S. McManus gushed melons from Westlaco. All of these streams formed two rivers of great cattle loads flowing up highways 281 and 77. It was an amazing thing to see, but it was even more fun to sell. I do apologize to melon shippers, which I didn't mention. If the cantaloupe deal was like the 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 2010 Rio Grande river flood, you remember that? The onion deal was like a full-on over-the-levees Mississippi river flood. Uh, star produce was in this, and it, there were packing houses all over the valley all the way down to Charles Wettergrove Company in Raymondville. I remember one year when at the peak of the deal, Griffin and Brand packed 80,000 bags of onion a day for a week or 10 days. That's 4 million pounds of onions per day that would fill 100 or more 18-wheelers. That was just from Griffin and Brand. Admittedly, they were the largest in the country, but there were many others pushing large numbers of onion bags down the road, too. Fresh produce salesmen have my respect. They work in multitasking and stress conditions that most people cannot or will not tolerate. But among this band of brothers and sisters, there are we few, we we deranged few, who feel electrified and most alive in the peak stressful situations. The spring season was the time they got my blood up. It also pushed up my blood pressure and resting heart rate. Once during the spring season, uh, blood services called me asking me to donate my rare blood type for a child accident victim. I left the office immediately. Uh, upon arrival, the blood tech followed their procedure by taking my blood pressure and heart rate. And then he left instead of talking to another employee for 10 minutes or so and then returned and took my blood pressure and heart rate again. He asked me if I had run down to their office. Now I was getting impatient, okay? And I said, no, what makes you ask that? He explained that my blood pressure and resting heart rate were way too high for them to take blood. I simply said, it's onion season, and walked out. I know he didn't understand, but my vitals would remain high until the end of the season.
0: industry really was such a huge economic boost to the region. I think you hardly see that now with the retail as basically the number one thing that boosts the region's uh, economy.
1: Yeah, it's true, Pamela. Today, most people can't imagine the scale of the industry. It isn't generally known that the Valley's sudden population explosion in the early 1900s was because of two revolutions. First revolution was the Rio Grande Valley irrigation revolution. Uh, It made unfarmable land into fertile agricultural oases. In 1910, the population of Hidalgo County was about 13,000. That's not enough hands to operate any moderate-sized fresh produce industry. New farmers here must have been nervous about how to get enough labor. Then the violence of the Mexican Revolution drove tens of thousands of Mexicans north into Texas, and now the farmers had the necessary labor to begin an industry, and the refugees had jobs. By 1920, 10 years later, the county's population was about 38,000, and by 1930, there were 77,000. The population tripled in one 10-year period, then doubled that number in another 10. The fresh produce business and its support industries were expanding, and the hands were coming to make it to happen. The industry was a major employer here until its contraction uh, in the early 1990s.
0: Definitely. But before we really dive into the, the decline of the fresh produce industry, we still have a few more episodes. So could you summarize the next episode for us?
1: Yes, I will Describe the loss of empires as I saw it. Uh, The freeze of 1983 was a punch uh, from which the citrus segment of the industry would never recover. Fall of the giant fresh produce companies was a slower and more complex collapse.
0: This podcast was produced by me, Pamela Morales, and in collaboration with Lisa Adam, the curator of collections. Song is Carpe Diem by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about the Lost Empires and send your questions through the Anchor app. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, stories from the Rio Grande.